I think the modern church, particularly the American church, has a problem with memory loss. There are a lot of ways uh, that we have that we see this. I think there are a lot of issues that we as, as the modern American church have forgotten. But the one way that I think it is the most obvious is that we have forgotten church history. We see this in our response to the current culture. I mean, because our, our culture today is different than it was 40, 50, 20 years ago. Uh, in our culture now, righteousness is seen as odd and, and wickedness is seen as normal. Right? I mean, that's just the, the way that it is. Any sort of a, this is what's right is seen as a bad thing and any sort of everything flies and everything is okay, that is seen as a good thing. You see it, so many different issues when gay marriage, abortion, corruption in politics, uh, and just a, a growing hostility toward the Christian faith in the public sphere all around. And as these things, these sort of hostility and these sort of immorality becomes more and more accepted, something I hear churches and Christians ask more and more often is, is how or how will the church continue to exist in a world where righteousness is odd and sin is normal? Uh, and and how, do we, how will the church continue to, to exist when there is a, a culture that is severely in opposition to our faith. And, and those problems, those questions, they do come from a good place of concern. But they do betray a, a real ignorance of church history and the world that the church was born into. I mean, if you think back to Acts 2, when the church came into being, the religious leaders of the church, or the religious leaders of the world at that time, had recently murdered the founder of the Christian faith by convincing the Romans to crucify him. This was done in part to stop the movement that he was starting. These same religious leaders had taken an extreme dislike toward the, the new leaders of this movement that Jesus had started and began to persecute them almost immediately. Now the initial persecution typically focused on the leaders themselves and not just on the people. And so as the leaders began to be persecuted, they thought if they could shut the leaders down, the people would scatter. But the leaders didn't stop. The, the more they pressed in on these leaders of this new movement, the more they preached that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, who, were, who died on the cross and was raised to life again. And since... The leaders wouldn't stop and the church was continuing to grow. The, the ones that were hostile, they then began to take the hurt that they were bringing on the leaders and put it on the people themselves. And, and the persecution and the hardship in Jerusalem was so strong and so hard that people were forced to flee Jerusalem, to flee their homes, to flee their families, to flee everything they had ever known for fear of their lives. But rather than cower in fear, rather than go to these new places and never mention Jesus, they went to these new places and they took the gospel with them everywhere that they went. And every time they went somewhere, churches were planted. Every time they went somewhere, souls were saved. And the world that they launched themselves into, it was not a friendly world to their faith. The Greek and the Roman world was wretchedly wicked. Sexual immorality was rampant and the norm of the day. In fact, in many places, they had male and female temple prostitutes. And the, the sexual immorality of the culture was such 
that having sexual relations with a temple prostitute was seen as an act of worship to that God. Abortion was common and allowed in this culture. The government of the time had absolute power. Caesar would eventually take an extraordinarily hostile, take, hostile view of the Christian faith and persecute them. He would do things to Christians like burn them alive. He would dip them in pitch and put them on stakes and burn them alive while he had a party. They were the lights for his outdoor nighttime party. Christians were fed to the lions for sport. They were tortured in an effort to make them to deny Jesus. This was the world that the Christian church was born into. So to the question, how can or how will the church continue to exist in a world where righteousness is odd, wickedness is normal, and there is serious opposition to our faith? The answer is that the church today would have to relearn to do what the church then was able to do. Because what we have to understand is the church in the middle of all of that opposition, all of that hostility, it didn't just survive. Thrive. The church in that world was said to have turned the world upside down. The, the persecution of the world cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. The world's hostility toward our faith, cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. The, the immorality abounding and seeing normal cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. In the modern American church, we have forgotten this. We have gotten so comfortable and so complacent in our cultural acceptance that we believe cultural acceptance is necessary for the survival of the church of Jesus Christ. And it never has been in the past and it is not today. No matter what the culture does, no matter what the culture is like, the church of Jesus Christ will always exist and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Do not buy the lie. That the church of Jesus Christ is a poor, pitiful organization trying to mind its own business, live its life, and yet it is mercilessly attacked by the big mean devil. But thankfully, Jesus just happens to protect it so that it greeks by. The church is neither poor nor pitiful. The church is the most powerful force in the world because Jesus Christ Himself has promised His power to work in and through and for the church. And the church of Jesus Christ is not trying to mind its own business. We are far, far from trying to mind our own business. We are still in the business of turning the world upside down. Our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations. And that's what we're trying to do. And that upsets the cultural status quo. When you make disciples in a culture, the culture... Changes, And that's, that's really how the church is meant to change the culture. By making disciples. And that's what the church is on mission to do. And that mission, it, it, has, it was never popular. It, it has never been popular in history. 
Even in, in what we might call the, the glory days of America, the idea of genuinely making disciples was not popular. I mean, you go back to what we would call our, our glory days and the rise of the fundamentalists like Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, when he would go hold revivals in places, so many people would get saved and commit their lives to Christ that bars would go out of business. So do you know what people did when he went into towns with bars? The bar owners stood on the street corners and threw rocks at him. We're talking 50s, 40s. It has never been popular anywhere in the world for the church to be the church and try to make disciples of all nations. No matter what the culture does, it will not win. It doesn't matter who's elected. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. It doesn't matter. The church is not dependent on people or cultural acceptance or a political party. The church is dependent upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus has promised that He will conquer. And that the church gets to take part in that victory. Today, this week and next week, we're going to look at a little bit that shows us what does it mean for the church to take part in Jesus' victory. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 7 is where we're going to start. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 16, but we're basically just going to look at verses 7 uh, through 10 today. When you find that, I want you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Uh, that's page 896 if you have a pew Bible. Ephesians 4 and 7. But in every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what? Is that but that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is also the same that ascended far above the heavens, that he might have that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, until the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into Him, into all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which Every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, making the increase of the body and the edifying of itself in love. The title of the message this morning is The Victorious Christ and His Gifted Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, today we come and we repent, Lord, of our low view, the power of Jesus through the church. We repent where we thought we needed cultural acceptance for the church to thrive. We repent where we thought we needed laws passed to, for the church to thrive. We repent where we thought we needed any man or any person or any other organization other than Jesus and the power of the Spirit and the Gospel in order for the church to thrive. We come today and we seek You. We seek Your Spirit. We seek Your truth. We seek Your power to be at work in our lives. We want our town 
to be turned upside down through the gospel going forth from our church and all the other churches in our town. Father, we want to see stuff like we saw in the book of Acts where people who profited from human slavery to sin were put out of business, not because of new laws that were passed, not because of politicians that were elected, but because the gospel went forth in such power that people burned. They burned their witchcraft books. They stopped buying the idols. Those who were profiting from those things began to get worried because the church was clearly something unique and something powerful. We need to return to that in our day. Father, today as we look at this passage and we see the victory of Christ and what that means for us, first and foremost, let us take it to heart. Let us begin to live in light of the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Help us, O oh God, to be your people devoted to doing your will. That we would be living sacrifices who offer ourselves wholly unto you. That there would be no part of our lives that we hold back. For truly, we know that you don't accept a partial sacrifice. You've said that we give you all or we give you the best or you accept nothing at all. Kill any sort of lukewarmness within us. Kill any sort of resting on our past and on what's been done in our history. And let us look forward to what you're going to do in us and through us for us, for your glory in our community and our church. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Use me for your glory. I ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, we're going to look at this passage this week and next week. We're going to kind of break it in half. This week we're looking at the victory and what that means for us. Next week we're going to look at the victory and how that's kind of lived out, what impact it has in the world. Now, this passage initially may not really look like it has anything to do about the victorious Christ. But, but look at the wording in verse 8 particularly. Wherefore he saith, he ascended up on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Um, in, in verse 8, Paul loosely quotes from Psalm 68 and 18, which the psalm pictures God as a conqueror. It's one of my favorite psalms. It, it begins, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Let God arise and His enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate Him flee before Him. As the smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As the wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. That's a powerful psalm. Powerful wording and prayer for God to move in power on the people. Now most people believe that that psalm was written when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem by David in 2 Samuel 6. Now if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know the Ark had been lost in battle with the Philistines many, many years before. The Philistines took it and they laid it in the temple of their, their god Dagon and God showed His power by making their idol fall down and break apart and, and then He began to just do bad things to the people to show them that He was God and they were not to the point that they took the ark and they put it on a new cart and they let it go and it walked straight to Israel. And in Israel it went to the house of a man named Obed-Edom where it stayed there for many, many years. It did not go to Jerusalem or to the central place of the temple or of the worship of God where it was meant to be. But David becomes king. He establishes Jerusalem as the central place for the nation of Israel. And then he determines it's time to bring the ark back. It's time to return it to its rightful place. And as David brings the ark in, there's a great deal of rejoicing. There is a great deal of offerings that he's making to the Lord. And, and as he brings it in, the Bible tells us this. As soon as David had made an end of offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, 
He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and He dealt among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread, a good piece of flesh, a flagon of wine, so that all the people departed, every one, to the house. For David's mind, bringing the ark of God was a victory. The ark was lost in defeat, but God coming back like this was a sign of victory. It was a sign of the victory and the power of God and His blessing upon His people. And so to show how God was victorious and how God was mighty, David gave gifts unto the people. And it was a very common custom in this day for a conquering general or a conquering king to share spoil from those that he conquered with his soldiers and with his, really his immediate city. And that's the picture here. Jesus Christ is a conqueror, and so He has given gifts unto men. Right? It says in verse 9 and 10 that He ascended and descended. He, he descended from heaven onto earth to a divine mission to seek and to save those who were lost. This mission required Him to give that last full measure of devotion by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. From the cross, He was taken down and He descended into the, the earth where He was in the grave for three days before He rose from the grave and then ascended Back into heaven. As he ascended into heaven, he was the one who conquered death and freed those who had lived their lives in captivity. And as the king of kings, the conquering ruler, he now divides his spoil to those who are with him. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and the verse of verse 7 it says that everyone has given us grace, given to us according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That's what it's talking about. Jesus as the victorious king, the conquering ruler, now divides his spoil with those who are a part of his kingdom. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a gift of grace that is given to you to be used within your church, within your community for the glory of God. And the key truth for us is that the victorious Christ has created a gifted church. But Jesus has given the church a great mission to go and make disciples of all nations. But He's not given us this mission to come up with our own cleverness on how to do it. He's not given us this mission to work it out in our own strength. Instead, what He has done, and He has not worked on this mission to say, go as an individual and you as an individual. Go and make disciples of all nations. Remember what we talked about last week that in verse 6, how we are one. Right, So what Jesus has done is He has not just gifted me as an individual or you as an individual. What He has done is He has created one new organization. He has created the church and He has created a gifted church for the purpose of going and making disciples to all nations. And He says, Paul says, unto every one of us is grace given according to the gift of Christ. Just as David gave gifts to the whole multitude, to the women and the men. Now, that doesn't stand out much to us, because again, our culture is so very different. But in that culture, to give it to the women as well as the men, that was an extraordinarily generous thing, because women were not often included in things like this. This is a picture that David gave a gift to everybody that was there at that time. Using that, the picture is that every single believer in Jesus Christ, man, woman, child, if you have been born again through faith in Christ, there is a gift of God's grace that has been given to you that is meant to be used through the church in the community for the glory of Christ to advance His kingdom and to see souls saved and lives changed. So if someone were to come to you and say, Hey, I read in the Bible something about spiritual gifts. Who? has spiritual gifts? The answer is every single born-again believer 
has at least one spiritual gift given to them by Christ. Now if we had time, we could look at several passages that talk about the gifts that are given to us. We, we, I read Romans 12, the first of the passage. You could look at it. It talks about some of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, really 12, 13, and 14 all talk about the gifts. And then 1 Peter 4, uh, particularly verses 9 and 10, also talk about the various ways that Christ has gifted His church. Now, while Scripture does give us these lists, I, I, my, my view is that those lists are not meant to be all-inclusive of all the gifts. Because the lists aren't the same from place to place. There are a few things that are carried over from one to the next. In fact, it talks about he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. Those are also gifts that have been given to the church. Um, but by and large, the, the, the lists are all different. And I think the picture is that the way that Christ has gifted his church is in great variety. There are a, a variety of gifts that he gives to his church so that they can go out and make disciples of all nations. Uh, but there are two key takeaways for us today in the fact that every one of us has been given a gift and in light of those lists that you can study on your own. The first is that our gifts are to be used. Now this should be easy enough for us to understand. If the king of kings who conquered death, hell, and the grave has given you a gift, what do you suppose He intends for you to do with it? To bury it under the sand? Or to take it and use it for His glory? To advance His kingdom? To spread His gospel? The gifts that are given to us are all meant to be used. Which means we're all meant to be active in our service and our devotion to Jesus. Look at what the Bible says about this. Peter says that every man has received a gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Right? As every man has received a gift, minister it. What's that mean? You've received a gift, now use it. Right? It's the picture that Jesus has given us a gift, and so we're meant to use it. We see that same picture in Romans 12. If you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of leadership, be diligent. If you have the gift of generosity, do it with simplicity. Right? All of those, what it's saying is, if this is your gift, use it. Take it and use it and do exactly what God wants you to do with the gift that He has given you. Right? We are intended to take the gift, to know what it is, to find it, to develop it. Peter, or I'm sorry, Timothy is told by Paul to fan into flames the gift that is given to us. Right? This means we are to, to use it, to use it well, to develop it, to get better at it. To do all that we can to the best of our abilities to use that gift for the glory of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. And with this, though, we can't miss the wording of stewards. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward in biblical times was a slave that was given the responsibility over the master's estate. While he was in charge of the master's estate, the steward always had to keep in mind that he could not do whatever he wanted 
with what the master had entrusted to his care. Because it did not belong to him. Ultimately, it belonged to the master. And he was to use the master's stuff to do the master's will because there would be a day of reckoning coming. There would be a day when the master called him to give an account for how he had used what the master had entrusted to his care. It's like a manager at Walmart. There's a lot of leeway. But ultimately that's not his stuff. He can't just give it away. And he is accountable to someone higher than him who watches to see how he manages it, how he uses it. And if he doesn't use it well, then the district manager will walk in the store and put his arm around him and ask for the keys and take his badge off and then walk him out the front door and tell him not to come back. Because he's accountable. That's a picture of us. We have been given a gift by God to be used for His glory, to advance His kingdom, to promote His gospel. But it's not ours. It's not ours to say, I'm going to put it in my pocket and never use it. It's not mine to to put it on the shelf and say, well, I'm gifted to do this, but I I don't ever do it. Look, look. See, that's the gift that, that Jesus gave me. That's what, that's what He's gifted me to do. I'm equipped to do this. Are you doing it? Oh, no. No, that's why there's so much dust on it. But look at it. Isn't it pretty? I set it right in the center place in my house so that everybody knows that's what my gift is. That's not what we've been given the gift to do. We've been given the gift to use the gift in the way that the Master wants the gift to be used. And there is a day coming when we will give an account for what we've done with what He has given us. We don't have time this morning, but take time and read Matthew 25 about the parable of the talents. The talents are committed unto the servants and they're told to do business until the Master returns. And then when the Master returns, He calls them in and He says, tell me what you did with what I gave you. And those who used it to the best of their abilities, they were told, well done! Thou good and faithful servant. There was another one. And he hid the master's town. And he brought it back and said, I didn't use it. I buried it. And I kept it. Here it is. I give it back to you just like you gave it to me. And the master said, you wicked and lazy servant. And he commanded that he be cast into outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a picture being accountable to God. The gifts we have been given are meant to be used. We are not free to use them however we want. We are not free to not use them just because we don't want to. We aren't free to ignore them. And we are accountable to Jesus for what we do with what He's given us. Our gifts are to be used. The second big truth is that our gifts are for the benefit of others. If we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God regarding the gifts that we have been given, we have to know why we've been given these gifts. Because this is a big thing. Am I given the gifts so everybody will look at me? 
my giving the gifts so that people will be impressed at who I am and how I am in my life? Or am I given the gift for something else? The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now, three phrases in this sentence that we need to understand. First is manifestation of the Spirit. Now, that's not a very free will Baptisty phrase. It's not one we typically use on a regular basis. But it's there, and here's what it means. Manifestation, it carries with the idea of making something clear or obvious or known. In this case, what's being manifested, what's being made clear, obvious or known, is the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. So what is it in the life of a believer that makes known the work of the Spirit in their life? Well, in this context, it is their use of the gift that has been given them. This is a past 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts. So there are there is a, a manifestation of the Spirit given to us. And the way that, that it is clear that we are Spirit-filled and Spirit-led and the Spirit is at work in our lives is when we know what our spiritual gift is and we use it for the glory of God, the advancement of the kingdom, the promotion of the gospel. Secondly, it's given to every man. We've covered this already, but it always bears repeating. Every believer in Jesus Christ has at least one spiritual gift. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how young you are. If you have truly been born again, there is a spiritual gift given to you. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift. The moment you were converted, this was imparted to you through the Spirit. It's how God equips us to serve Him, to do His will. And then, the third one, to profit with all. And most translations, others say it different ways. The New King James says, for the profit of others, or the benefit of others. Others say, for the common good. Spiritual gifts are given to us, but not primarily for us. They are given to us to benefit others. Now, as we use our spiritual gifts, truly we will be blessed in our lives. There are blessings that we experience as we do what God has gifted us to do. But that is not the primary reason that they are given to us. They are not given to us for our glory. They are not given to us so that we will be exalted. They are not given to us so that we will be looked to or known. They are given to us to benefit others, to, to make a difference in their lives, right? And look at, just quickly, at, at the verses we didn't cover, we're not covering today. Look over here at verse 11. He gave some apostles and prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, do we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God in a perfect man according to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Now notice the picture. Some gifts are given for the church to help others. And those people then use their gifts to help everyone else too. Right? Everything that's done is done as a communal type blessing. Right? The gifts that I've been given are, are meant to benefit you. The gifts that you've been given are meant to benefit me. We, we benefit, we help one another 
be built up in Christ as we all use our spiritual gifts. Because you do not have every gift that is necessary to make disciples of all nations. I do not have every spiritual gift necessary to make, to make disciples of all nations. In fact, Kelly and I, in our marriage, we do not have every gift necessary to make disciples of all nations. You and your spouse do not have every gift necessary to make disciples of all nations. But do you know who does? We do. Everything that God wants done in our community, we have the ability to do. You don't. I don't. We Our gifts are meant to benefit for the common good so that the church can do its work in making disciples of all nations. Now, that idea that the gifts are given for the common good and to be used together is a very different mindset than than what a lot of people have, particularly in the American church. This picture uh, shows a good idea of the mindset that many have versus the mindset that we're supposed to have. Right on one side, it says a consumer church. A consumer church is seen as a a dispenser of religious goods and services. People come to church to be fed, to have their their spiritual needs met through quality programs, and to have the professionals teach their children about God. Their phrase is, I go to church. But that's different from the missional church. And the missional church is a body of people sent on mission who gather in community. So we're still gathering together for worship, for community encouragement, for teaching from the Word, in addition to what they are self-feeding themselves through the week. And their phrase is, I am the church. Now, what the picture calls consumer church, it is the model that the American church has had for many, many years. And yet, it's not the model that we see in Scripture. It is not the model that Jesus presents to what He envisions the church to be. Jesus gives gifts unto all. Jesus gives the Spirit unto all. Jesus empowers all. Why? So that we can be the church. But our gifts aren't given just to come and listen to me use my gift. Our gifts aren't given just to, to sit in a pew and sing a song and listen to a sermon and go out and, and eat. Our gifts are given to be used together for the common good to make disciples of all nations within our community. Within the church, there is a certain balance that we have to maintain. We are to be consumers and contributors. We all need the church for encouragement, for fellowship, and to be strengthened in our spiritual life and to be challenged in our walk with Christ and to be taught from God's Word. We all need that. That's consuming. And that is is right. We are all meant to consume like that. At the same time, we are all meant to be involved in serving, in giving, and in helping the overall ministry and health of the church. That is contributing. When we are in balance, as we should be, we consume and we contribute. 
When we are out of balance, we consume or we contribute. Those who consume, they are taught, they're encouraged, they are strengthened, but then they never give anything back. They never do. They never contribute. You're all meant to consume and contribute. Every gift is needed. The church is called a body. What part of your body can I just cut off because you don't need it today? We would not give it. We, anybody that's ever had a part of their body give out. You know that yes, you can still kind of function. But it's not the way that it should be. When you've got a gimpy knee, you can still do things, but you can't do the stuff you could do before your knee was gimpy. It's the same in the church. Now the church can it'll it'll limp on, it'll keep on if if only two or three people are are contributing. But it is limping on. It, it is far from what it's meant to be. Every gift, every person is necessary. I like this verse, this passage. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That in everything you are enriched by Him in all utterance and all knowledge. Those are gifts. Even the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that you come behind in what? In no gift. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul went to Corinth, he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus as the Savior who died and who rose again. And a Savior that was living and active in the lives of those that He saved. That was His message. That's what He preached. Now those statements were, were proven to be true. right? The, the testimony was confirmed when they believed Jesus, but not just when they believed, but when they were transformed from unbelieving pagans to Christ-worshipping and Christ-serving disciples. See, what confirmed the testimony that Jesus was risen, that Jesus was active, it wasn't just that they professed faith. It was that they had been enriched in utterance and in knowledge. As they began to be saved, they began to say, hey, I think God has equipped me for this. I think Jesus is working in me for that. And so they began to use it. And so now Paul could point at the church and say, you want proof that Jesus is risen? You want proof that, the, that He is active and at work in the lives of His people? Look at those people. They were pagans not long ago, but now look, they're devoting their lives to service and devotion to Jesus. Look. The slaves are now worshipping with the slave masters. Those who were oppressed are now worshipping with those who were formerly oppressors. They've all been born again. They've all come together as one and they were all serving together the great and the glorious Lord of all. And Jesus had so equipped them that they come behind in no gift. It meaning they lacked nothing that needed to be done in Corinth. And I believe... I believe what was true in Corinth is true in virtually every church in the world. Most churches will say, boy, we need more people. I mean, we always want to reach more people. But what if I told you that within 
nearly every church in America, every church in the world, but let's just start in America because that's where we are. There is less of a need of more people, more new people, as there is a need of the people who are already there to find and use their spiritual gifts. What if the greatest need in any church in America wasn't more gifted people, but for the people who are already gifted to start using those gifts for the common good, for the advancement of the gospel, for the salvation of the lost, for the making of disciples of all nations. There's all kinds of things. They say, well, I wish our church could do that. I wish our church could do this. The reality is, in the group of people that make up our church, we have everything we need in order to do all the things that God wants us to do in Gaiman and beyond. And if we can't do it, it's not because the giftings aren't there. It's because the gifted aren't being good stewards of the gifts that God has given them. And this happens when people are out of balance. Because when the church is out of balance, one of two things happen. Important things do not get done. Or people do things they are not gifted to do and they burn themselves out. When you find a church filled with people who are burnt out from serving and ministering and all that they do, you will find that those are the people who consume and contribute and contribute and contribute. And the church is also filled with people who consume and consume and consume and consume and never contribute. In every church... It's like what was that? something I've heard about a football game. Football game is what 22 people who are desperately in need of rest being watched by thousands of people who are desperately in need of exercise. In every church, there are people in desperately in need of rest, and they're being watched by people who desperately need to exercise their faith and use their spiritual gifts in the way that God has given them. Jesus has gifted you. If you're a believer. And he wants you to use that gift for the common good. So that he is glorified. His kingdom advances. His gospel goes forth. Souls are saved. Prodigals are restored. And disciples are made of all nations. This is what we're meant to be about in our lives. This is a sign of a church who believes in a victorious Christ. They give their lives for the sake of the gospel. They give their lives for the sake of Christ. They devote themselves to doing the will of God. This is who we all need to be. This is who we're meant to be. And if we seek Jesus, He will show us what we're supposed to do. How He has gifted us. It's not meant to be a really strange and scary secret that we don't know. He wants us to know And to use that gift far more than we probably want to know and use that gift. If we seek Him, He will show it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today and you are a believer, but you are unsure of your spiritual gifts, then use this time to pray for Jesus to show you what He wants you to do 
He's not necessarily going to show you right now in this instant at this moment. But if you pray and seek Him earnestly. Because the Bible says we're to desire the best gifts. So it's right to desire spiritual gifts. We're supposed to. King James, in fact, says earnestly covet them. That is an intense phrase. And if you seek Him, and if you read the Word, you read those passages of gifts, you, you begin to study what they mean, and you look at way you feel pulled, you'll find it. The only reason we don't know what our gifts are is because we aren't seeking, and we aren't searching, and we aren't willing. But if we want to know, He'll show us. But we've got to be willing to go out to do it. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, that's where it all has to start. The gifts, they come to believers. Those who have repented of their sins and believed on Jesus Christ. You must choose to call on Jesus to save you. You must believe that He he died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. You must believe that He will save you. You must believe that His death on the cross is the only hope you have for salvation. And then you must make the decision to turn to Jesus from your sin, receiving Him as both Savior and Lord. This is your decision. No one can make it for you. You must do it. And if you haven't done it, that is your greatest need today. Let's take this time And let's seek the Lord in the areas where we need to seek Him.